Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, September 20th, 2021. I am John Von Horitz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Today, our October issue will be up online. Um, it is uh, a pretty spectacular one, I have to say. Uh, we have a package called Requiem for a Superpower. Uh, the, the lead article is by Brett Stevens called The Post-Pax Americana World. Um, which details the uh, potential horrific consequences of our uh, shameful bug out from Afghanistan. Uh, it is followed by a remarkable piece by Eli Lake on what was accomplished in Afghanistan that we threw away, and a piece by Jonathan Shanzer uh, about the deranged idea that we can somehow find an ally in the Taliban against ISIS-K. We also have a piece by Adam White on the Texas abortion case. Um, uh, A whole bunch of of really terrific stuff. And I'll I'll start uh, with my colleagues here, uh, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, With a piece uh, Matt Continetti has written in his Washington commentary column, which we call Biden the Incompetent. And we we reflected on this uh, a couple of days last week. But um, Friday afternoon was a doozy for the uh, uh, administration and for the United States uh, in suggesting that there is a very, very shaky hand on the tiller uh, in the country, in the White House, and in the general decision-making practices uh, of the executive branch. We have this uh, horrible acknowledgement after uh, weeks of press reporting by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin that the uh, supposed strike against those who uh, terror bombed and killed 13 American servicemen, that that strike went awry, uh, that it in fact hit someone who was not a an ISIS-K member, and uh, it killed 10 people um, around about the same moment uh, on Friday afternoon. Uh, the uh, FDA uh, refused or made a strong recommendation that Third booster shots uh, for COVID should not be extended to everyone, but only to those over the age of 65 who are at particular risk. And then there was something else. I can't even remember what the third thing was as I'm as I'm delivering the border this. crisis yeah. or France. Right. Choose choose your poison. Okay. Right. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> France will, will recalled its ambassador uh, from the United States, which is a very very significant diplomatic protest uh, against the fact that we uh, stepped in and and stole their contract. Uh, apparently, uh, with Australia for nuclear submarines, this is an, an issue we can't really get pretty all that deeply into. I think because I don't think we really understand what on earth is going on here uh, precisely. Um, uh, but for the grown-ups in the room who were supposedly restoring our alliances, uh, you know, in it, with countries that no longer trusted us and felt good about us. Uh, 
uh, I wouldn't say that this is a ringing endorsement of the uh, of the success of Biden's claim that his presidency would be a restoration of normal relationships with Western allies. Uh, and then we, of course, have the border where um, many thousands of Haitians, apparently Haitians who have not escaped from Haiti, but actually have been living uh, in Central and South America, managed to get themselves under a bridge uh, in, uh, you know, Del Rio. on the Rio Grande in Del Rio, yeah. Texas, uh, uh, the purpose of which is to get them there, to get them arrested, uh, and then to have them uh, apply, you know, sort of say that they need asylum, get arrested, and then be released out into the country. Oh, okay. and let me add another. Let me add sure. one more. Uh, this then goes not to Biden, but to but to the entire Democratic Party's efforts this month. The Senate parliamentarian ruled that a provision in the three point five trillion dollar budget reconciliation bill, which they have two weeks to pass, apparently, uh, which is insane. Uh, that they people had snuck a provision into the bill, essentially changing our entire green card system uh, in one fell swoop. Uh, and the Senate parliamentarian, who is supposedly to, to rule on this game that is played that says that uh, you can vote on certain bills, you can pass certain bills without cloture, meaning uh, at 51 votes, positive votes, instead of 60 votes, um, uh, provided they have no budgetary implications uh, or they have budgetary implications. I mean, whatever, it doesn't matter. However, I, whatever you want to slice it, uh, the Senate parliamentarian said under no circumstances can you do this with the, with the um, provision to change the green card system. So uh, it's not been a good weekend for Biden or the Democrats. And that's my, the end of my summary. Okay, so let's begin by ruling out France. That's an easy one. We can just rule that one out because if a Republican administration had engineered a deal <clears throat> to provide Australia, a close Five Eyes ally, with uh, nuclear technology, very closely guarded nuclear technology for submarines, um, edging out uh, a French contractor in the process, and France responded by saying, you are disrupting our Indo-Pacific strategy and, you know, recall their ambassador in a fit of peak. Um, not a single Republican in America would do anything other than say, well, good. <laughs> so I, I, have, I have very little sympathy for, for the French in this, in this, you know, case they're fit to be tied over Afghanistan. They deserve to be, um, and they should be. And I think a lot of their response to this provocation, uh, reflects that frustration, um, and otherwise pecuniary loss which is sort of uh, gauche to behave in this fashion. And that's what France historically does. They, they behave in imperfect okay, so ways you're say, so you're state. So you're saying good on the Biden administration for pulling the rug out from under the French and taking, <laughs> taking and that cementing nuclear submarine contract and cementing, and cementing our, our alliance with, the, with Australia. Right, with Canberra and in pursuit of a broader strategy of isolating and uh, containing China. So yes. Okay. So yay. So we yay. are now. We are very. We're happy. We're happy, happy. to have stuffed those freedom fries eating 
to render monkeys yet again. Look, yet it could again, have been more we're diplomatically back, we're handled. 2002, 2003. Okay. I'm sure there's I, a better I, way to I, have I'm done all, this. I'm all in on that. I love that. Thank you very much. So we are now giving the Biden administration snaps for this diplomatic crisis, and I'm, <laughs> I, I'm there for it. Okay. But everything else is a disaster. I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> okay. So let's... The point that Matt makes in his piece, Biden the Incompetent, which will be online later today at commentary.org, where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe, is that Biden is not very good at his job. And um, I think I think we can now make it pretty, I think it's self-evident that you can learn on the job, you can get better at the job, um, you can... Your, the job can alter you, and you can alter the job, and all of that. He's got three years and three more months to be president uh, in this term, and you can't write anybody's epitaph or obituary or you know play taps. Uh, what we can say is that um, uh, what we've seen over the last couple of months is now about to go through another crucible. Uh, in the American consciousness because of what is going on with this budget reconciliation bill. And not only with the budget reconciliation bill, but with the hard infrastructure bill and with the debt ceiling. These are all very boring things to talk about. So boring that even though I read about them every day, I can never remember what is what and where, what, where is where. But the essential story here is that Biden is governing with the narrowest majorities in Congress in practically in American history. No, no, no majority in the Senate and three or four seat majority in the House. And the House uh, is behaving as though uh, he's got a hundred seat majority in the house and is losing its cookies over the possibility over the fact that uh, senators who are Democrats from states that do not agree with the liberal agenda are not going along with their efforts to uh, re great society eyes America. Can, can right. I just I, I just want to say one more thing before we jump into all the all the congressional stuff, because I don't think we should gloss over the drone strike and the admission of error on the part of the Biden administration just just quickly because it, it killed children and an innocent man and destroyed a home. And the idea that the Biden administration didn't know it had made a terrible mistake early on and was telling the press, oh, we're analyzing it. Oh, we're analyzing it. They knew. They knew they messed up. It took actually reporting coming out and really pressuring them to admit. Remember, they told us initially, oh, we took out a very important ISIS-K figure, et cetera, et cetera. The weird sort of inability to take ownership until force, I guess, is traditionally what, what administrations do. But again, we were, he ran, Biden ran on his experience. He'd been vice president. He'd been a senator. And that combined with his, you know, lunch, lunch pail Joe persona was supposed to be the perfect thing that this country needed. And they, his experience has actually proven time and time again to have been inseparable from his 
characterological stubbornness. And that's actually in part where we get these news cycles where a mistake is made and they don't even have a good way of responding to it. They're supposed to be the adults in charge. They're not the administration, the people he's brought and surrounded himself with have a similar sort of um, inability to do that. Yeah, the events of that um, week are hard to remember because there are so many <clears throat> cascading series of events. That, so, you know, a lot of this is, uh, you know, bleeds into each other and is kind of foggy. But um, there were plenty of questions at the time of this event. And there was supposedly this secondary explosion that occurred as a result of this strike, which was indicative, according to you know, the, the administration and the Pentagon, of this, this particular strike hitting its mark. Um, but there are questions about that one, and there are questions about the first strike, the retaliatory strike, the initial retaliatory strike from the uh, suicide bombing on the Kabul airport. Uh, supposedly that neutralized two uh, uh, Islamic State Coruscant figures, and we never got their names. We still don't know who they are. If they were high-profile figures, it would be a departure from best from pre previous practice not to release their names. That's something that they do, the Pentagon tends to do when they execute a high-profile strike like this. Um, so there were questions about that. And then this, this strike, which was supposedly preventative or preemptive rather, um, produced the secondary explosion. And that was what produced, uh, the, uh, collateral damage that was being reported initially. And the collateral damage was yes, seven children, but also of somebody who worked with American, uh, troops in the, in the past an interpreter. Um, and so now we don't know what to believe because that strike was supposedly with um, munitions that aren't supposed to produce that kind of secondary strike or, or, or explosion at all. So we don't even know what munitions were used, what ordnance was used, what well, the targets were, what we got, where the intelligence came from. Did it come from Taliban sources? It probably did. Uh, all this sort of thing has just produced a lot more questions. And when we were asking these questions at the time, because this, this was a, uh, something that I remember researching and discussing at the time, you got a lot of pushback from the administration and people who were loyal to this administration in the press. You know, what's funny, what's funny administration is in the press, yeah. we're saying, you know, you can't even question this strike because obviously, obviously it hit its mark and you don't know anything. And how do you know? And what you, we, you know, it, obviously the secondary explosion produced, you know, demonstrated that they hit their mark. So it was, it was you know, and it, like you said, Christine, it's sort of traditional for administrations to get prickly around this sort of thing and push back and throw brushback pitches at you. Um, but the, the extent to which you saw members of the press who should know better, analysts and reporters who should know better defending this administration based on no evidence whatsoever, only because they didn't like the people who were criticizing it, um, is was truly uh, unseemly. I mean, I, you know, what's what's funny is that, you know, news velocity is so is so demented now that um, you're saying, you know, I reported it at the time. It, that was like three three weeks ago you know we're not talking about we're not talking about an event you know in the in the distant past here we are talking about the fact that um uh there was this uh, crazy horrible situation around the airport um and then we had this uh monstrous uh, terrorist attack on our uh our our, our fighting forces uh, and uh, the uh, the administration said we will retaliate, and it retaliated. And of course, this is the problem with um, instantaneous retaliation in a situation in which your intelligence capability has been entirely degraded by a thousand percent. I mean that that is 
the problem here is that is that this is a real world demonstration of exactly the, the reason that we shouldn't have left Afghanistan in the first place. Not that our servicemen died. That's not why, uh, but because our ability to I mean, it is why, but I, our ability to uh, manage circumstances uh, is uh, horrific, is horrifically bad. Um, because then we have to rely on bad actors to tell us what we're supposed to do with our technological capability that mishandled is murderous. I mean, you know, um, there was a fascinating, remarkable, extraordinary story in the New York Times yesterday by uh, Ronan Bergman, uh, Israeli, uh, the, probably the best reporter on Israeli intelligence on this strike on the head of uh, Iran's nuclear program um, that happened uh, with the use of a remote, uh, long-distance, remote-controlled machine gun that had been placed in a roadbed uh, that the guy was going to happen just to drive by. And, you know, somebody fired on him from a thousand miles away, controlling the gun the way people control drones from a room, you know, in Israel as opposed to, you know, in Tehran. Right? And likely using artificial intelligence and or facial recognition technology to make sure he right. they had the proper target. Right. You should add right. that because that made right. it even more. So this strike and these strikes that this piece details on the Iranian nuclear program are unbelievably well prepared. But by definition here, the gun had to be disassembled, had to be brought into Iran. However, the Israelis do this in parts and then assembled in Iran. And then they had to place a secondary car uh, to serve as either a look to, you know, they, they needed all kinds of things and they needed to make sure they were hitting the right guy. They needed to make sure his kids weren't in the car. They needed to make sure all of this. So the world's most successful and in some ways brazen intelligence service does everything of this sort at a level of preparation that we have now shown we are like some kind of a road company version of, you know, Ishtar. I mean, th this is not how a superpower acts, except when it is in degraded condition. Um, and that's the, that's the ancillary horror. The horror is that we committed a war crime. Uh, and we committed a war crime because we uh, there's no way on earth that we had 100% certainty that this was a target that this that this person who was killed was a target we couldn't have we took it on faith from sources that we we as Noah says we don't know who they are and we'll never know who they are i assume um and we this is, were this is uh, you're, you know, this is just driving me absolutely out, out of my mind. Um, and I'm going to bring something in my personal life here that I probably shouldn't, but nevertheless, it's just been on on my mind because this is my, my morning. I woke up to a piece in the Washington Post criticizing me um, by Dan Dresner, who uh, talked about who revisited my claim from a month ago, suggesting that this is the worst act of presidential maladministration in my lifetime, and it is and remains. Which Afghanistan, presidential. Af Af Afghanistan as a whole or the strike as a Afghanistan as a whole. Okay. Um, executing the strategy, crafting the strategy, renegotiating the strategy, this deadline, crafting this withdrawal strategy as they executed it 
from leaving Bagram and sacrificing Kabul, even though we were offered security for it, um, to you know abandoning tons of Americans and LPRs and all these visa holders and eligible evacuees, and then sacrificing our ability to disrupt and deter counter -terror, uh, terrorist operations in the AFPAC region. All of that contributes to what I believe is the worst act of maladministration in my lifetime. And the defense of the administration is so far as, well, you don't know. You don't know. You don't know that, you know, the, the assistance, the financial assistance that this administration has been rhetorically dangling in front of the Taliban for weeks now, trying to induce their cooperation by saying, well, they're going to need assistance. They're going to need access to the global economy. They might need to be recognized as a legitimate government, all that stuff. You don't know that that's happening. Yeah, I don't. Neither do you. Okay. You so, don't know that either. So what right. are you doing accusing me of being speculative? You're the one being speculative here. Everybody's grasping at some sort of a, you know, desperate grasp, groping for straws to defend this administration's abject incompetence and so sacrifice of American citizens and sacrifice of American security and safety. An uh, uh, abrogation of its duties, its responsibilities to American citizenry. And the notion here that I'm the one, the problem, who's just noticing it is, uh, you know, is beyond the pale, in my view. Abe. Well, I mean, the the horrific um, drone strike means, among other things, also that um, those who killed our Marines are still out there, right? That 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 attack has not been avenged. I mean, that's 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 one of the, the many horrors of, of of this. Right. I mean, look that that is that is the ultimate. And what's more, uh, the trail. Has, has gone cold. Like, we were like, we need to get these guys and tell them, some, you know, let's assume, let's create a scenario. The Taliban said, oh, well, it's Joe over there in the white Toyota Corolla. You know, all the all the intelligence buzz says it's a white Toyota Corolla. That, that That's the other uh, interesting aspect, I think, of the, the story is they knew it was the car because it was a white Toyota Corolla and the intelligence said white Toyota Corolla. I, who knows how many, I mean, Kabul, there are 4 million people in Kabul. I don't know what the I don't know what the automotive fleet of Kabul is like. It seems likely the Toyota Corolla, which I believe was ten years ago the best-selling car on the planet Earth, uh, there are many of them, and there are probably a lot of them are white. So uh, I don't think that's really like an identifying piece of information that 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 you I go. The oh, there, there's a white Toyota. Boom! You know, give it. The preferred I'm, vehicle in Afghanistan now is a Ford. Well, I think it's always a four. Right? I didn't, look, don't ask. You see, two three two thousand one. It was definitely uh, Asian makes. Right okay. now, yeah, it's all made in America, baby. So, I think the 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 point. By the way, Toyota Corollas are made in America. So, uh, I think most of them are Fair made enough. in America now. Anyway, yeah. whatever. Who cares? <laughs> my, my joke flop. No, your joke didn't flop <laughs> because we shouldn't even be joking. Like that's it's it's mordancy. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, uh, there are uh, reverberations from this and that, yes, you know, uh, I don't I really don't like to play the if the Republicans game. I don't like it because I think we would have been just as readily we would have been just as ready on this podcast to go at Trump's jugular for misbehaviors of this sort as we would Biden. I do not think that this is ideologically driven or driven in a partisan fashion. A lot of people don't like us and are angry at us on the right because of our skepticism and indeed our disgust with many of the things Trump did. So I, 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 I say this 
you know, comfortably not knowing I'm not doing this in a, in a partisan fashion, um, uh, you can't make mistakes like this. Like you, 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 you can't, the entire superstructure of our approach, uh, with targeted strike technology requires us to be a hundred percent effective with it. There is very little in the way of, of, um, uh, abiding by the moral principles of uh, the laws of war. If you believe that there are such things, um, in not having a hundred percent certitude that you are hitting the target. Now, th- that's the key here: is you have to have a hundred percent certitude that you're hitting the target. That's what the Israelis get. That's how the Israelis. That's why I brought up the story in the Times yesterday. Well, well I, while you were saying that, I was just thinking: um, forget what if the Republicans did this? What if the Israelis did this? Right. Right, right. I mean, well, they, they, right. they're accused of doing this. Well, there, right. there was. There well, the Israelis. By the way, when the Israelis, there, there was a case in which the Israelis targeted the wrong person in Jordan, or targeted two two wrong guys in Jordan, and the entire Israeli intelligence establishment was overhauled as a result of that single blunder. So, um, and we're sitting here. With Afghanistan, you know, not not even anywhere in the rearview mirror, and nobody is being held accountable for what has happened there, which well, okay. is maybe fair because it's, of course, all on Biden. But uh, Christian, well, but sorry. there but there is usually someone uh, fired for this sort of thing at some you know higher level, and and look, we've been we've had an ongoing. Uh, moral and philosophical debate about the use of drones in these targeted assassinations for almost a decade, right? This this was ongoing. The ACLU even filed lawsuits. Um, there was a huge kerfuffle when an eight-year-old girl who was an American citizen was killed in Yemen during the Trump administration. That was like 2017 or 18, if I recall. So, so it's not as if we don't have an ongoing national discussion about First of all, the legality of this, which is still debated, um, certainly among law professors and, and foreign policy types, but also, you know, regardless of whether they're American citizens who are killed in an extrajudicial fashion overseas because they're working with terrorist groups, or they're, uh, in this case, what was a horrific collateral damage, that's still, there's a moral issue here. And in terms of how the rest of the world is looking at us and judging us, there's that issue. But there's the lack of honesty with the American people about what they're doing there, because it's really hard to look at that that particular killing and not think that it was a political response to a chaotic situation of the Biden administration's own creation. I just don't see how you and, and people died because of that. I mean, people die in war, you know, in World War Two, it's very, very important. This is actually the defense justification for using drones is that 25% of the bombs in World War II, at least, maybe 50%, we don't really have a, a, a thorough understanding, missed their targets. And they landed somewhere, and they killed a lot of people. And that's, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people who were killed by errant stray bombs. And so the whole uh, art of war over time is to make sure that your targeting is incredibly precise so that you limit collateral damage and therefore make war you know, uh, which is a monstrous, uh, horrific necessity at times as, you know, as specific to the forces that you need to hit as as possible. And uh, drones bring that to a unique level. And uh, as I mentioned before, we published an 11,000 word defense of drones by Kenneth Anderson in 2010 or 2011 
which maybe we'll link in uh, something so you guys can, can read it. Um, but uh, there's, it is very specifically the idea that um, uh, there is no collateral or, or that, you know, relative to what you would do under other circumstances, there is no collateral damage. That is the, that is the justification for, it's not entirely extrajudicial. I mean, it's generally speaking, you want a lawyer involved in something like that, but no judge is ruling on it. There's no whatever. Um, I'm just saying again that the Israelis, and the reason I keep going to the Israelis is they're the only ones that we know are doing this aside from us, though I'm sure other nations do it, and God knows what Putin is doing and stuff like that. France. France huh? executes these France. sort of strikes okay. in uh, North Africa. Okay, so so um, that the Israelis uh, who have who have are have an incredibly elaborate internal process to ensure precisely because of what you know Abe said like they they have no margin for error in terms of the court of public opinion and indeed the court of sort of like liberal Jewish opinion and stuff like that but that's not the only reason why they also have a you know they are trying to themselves limit the possibility that there can be counter strikes of a huge nature the piece in the times by Ronan Bergman makes the point that they were in part encouraged with the possibility that this strike on on Fergzada, the the um, the uh, leader of the Iranian nuclear program, uh, could be undertaken without gigantic ancillary consequences by the Iranian response to our striking Soleimani, uh, you know, the basically the head of the Iranian army. Um, uh, and since Iran did not go ballistic and did not try to assassinate Trump or did not, you know, go to war with with with, with Israel, they were like, okay, well, I guess maybe we are in a place where we can really do this. These are considered, studied, long range, long term intelligence plans. We got into trouble. A terrible thing happened to our soldiers, and we went off half cocked. And you cannot go off half-cocked with this technology. You are going to destroy the effectiveness of the technology and you are going to turn Americans, who are, after all, the people who have to sort of say it's okay for this to happen, you are going to turn them against it. And that is would be, you know, a, a, a terrible uh, thing. But, you know, if, you, if you're a... Also in the long term, uh, when you have a blunder of this proportion, it means that... Uh, when you need to do things like this in the future, uh, when the U.S. needs to do things like this in the future, we're going to be very conflicted about it. I don't even just mean the American people, but I mean those executing it. Um, this, 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 this can sort of rattle um, uh, 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 an entire sort of um, defense approach. You know, um, this, 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 this reverberates through our net, you know, through the sort of, uh, uh, through the military in a way right. is that that kind of rocks you back. And that, of course, the joke here then is that um, the person who loved drones was Obama. Person who was addicted to droning was Obama for, for, for obvious reasons, which is that he wanted to say that he was in large bore against war and he wanted to get out of Iraq and he didn't like Afghanistan, no, he wanted to do nation building here at home, all of that. Um, and at the same time, there were threats and stuff like that. And this was some ideal 
tool for him because it's like let's go after that guy that we can decapitate this organization that organization it's understandable but it all and 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 what's more i i I, like i say i supported it and i think it is all things considered um uh, an important you know tool in the toolbox of fighting uh terrorism um but as i hate it's it's not a substitute for um, a geopolitical strategy that might involve the use of force. And there's a very high cost. There can be a high cost for trying to go small, you right. know, uh, as, yeah. as opposed to, yeah. to, to, to trying to go big. I mean, you know, my, my father, Norman Podhoritz, wrote a book in the early 80s called uh, Why We Were in Vietnam. And his point in the book about why the war uh, should not have been fought or was could never have been won was that we tried to do it on the cheap, on the military cheap, on the strategic cheap, and on the philosophical cheap. Though it doesn't look like that when you say, my God, we had, you know, a couple million men under arms and we had we suffered 58,000 casualties and we were there for 12 years, but that we were never willing to commit the kind of resources and full, full-scale attention necessary to actually prevail in whatever it was that we were trying to prevail in. And the danger of droning and the danger of this sort of thing is it is the ultimate doing something on the cheap. It is, no, we don't have to extirpate ISIS-K. We can just decapitate its leadership and then see what happens. Now, I, again, I don't think that that's a bad thing at all. Um but you do start creating these when you do things on the cheap and they start seeming cheap, um, then maybe you're a little less um, cautious uh, about them or you're a little less authoritative in your use of them. Uh, The Israelis, uh, I believe, look at every single aspect of this and think that it is never on the cheap. And I think we did this on the cheap. I mean, I I don't think there's any question that we did it on the cheap. We took bad intelligence that was not our own and hit a car and killed a lot of kids. Moreover, we shouldn't gloss over the fact that <clears throat> there are still hundreds of Americans stranded in Afghanistan, hundreds of Americans, legal permanent residents, green card holders who are just citizens and without the status uh, to say nothing of the thousands of visa holders and eligible wartime allies we abandoned there. And this administration is doing all it can to prevent, pretend as though that crisis doesn't happen, isn't happening. Now, we got 28, I think, Americans out of Kabul yesterday, something. Oh, we don't know, by the way. By the way, we don't know. Briefly, though, how much you want to bet that the total number of Americans still trapped in Afghanistan is going to be about 100? Because that's what it's been since the beginning of this crisis. And, you know, we can't, we don't have an accurate number. We can't possibly get an accurate number. And we don't actually want to prevent, provide an accurate number because that would jeopardize their security, blah, blah, blah. Bottom line is the the media's malpractice here, and this is media malpractice, uh, ignoring this ongoing crisis, this live crisis, in a way that I don't think is comparable as a parallel at all, as though the, the American public wouldn't be interested in this ongoing crisis. We should have a number the day of this crisis that we're on, and we should all be focused on it uh, you know, at, on an hourly basis. And we're not, and the reason we're not is because there there is a desperation on the part of this administration's allies in media to move on from this story right. um, to their to their you know eternal discredit. We better watch this detail about these twenty eight people who are flown out because the story is very vague on who uh, on who they are. It says American citizens and visa holders, and I I think we need to get visa holders out. I think we need to get the SIVs out. Don't 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 get me wrong. But we have American citizens 
somewhere in the three digits who are trapped there. And then we have SIVs and there are tens of thousands of them. So if you have 15 people on the plane who are American citizens and 13 people on the plane who are SIVs, uh, you are not reducing the numbers of those threatened by the Taliban for being either Americans or allied with Americans one whit in any in percentage terms in any way, shape or form. And so that, you know, we have to we are now in the place where we have to start looking at what is coming out of the mouths of these people with appropriate skepticism because they're not being they're not being and that's what's with us. absent. That's what's absent and has been from the beginning of this crisis. Any sort of not not just skepticism, but just you know, like a healthy cynicism. You know, a healthy yeah. cynicism of this administration and any administration, which is pro- the appropriate role of an adversarial media, uh, and you just don't see it. It's it's, it's I, I I wouldn't call it corruption. I hesitate to call it corruption, but it is motivated reasoning on the part of the press. Well, you listen to these press briefings where that the hundred number is for me. I, I agree with Noah. That is, it's so, it's so obnoxious. They just keep saying, well, let's just say a hundred. It's like Jen Psaki's like this CD used car salesman and the, and the press just sits there and wa- listens to it. It's like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. Let, let's go with that deal. No, no pressure on this administration to be honest because they, they just, they have this whole structure in which they want to shift the news cycle to the next thing. And as we started this podcast with, there are so many, things that we should start to become quite cynical and skeptical about. And we got to move on to those. But first, I want to talk to you about Super Beats Heart Chews, our first sponsor. It's a new way to start your day, a tasty treat that gives you the energy you need and is good for you. No more afternoon coffees, energy drinks, candy for a quick pick-me-up. Add two delicious plant-based Super Beats Heart Chews to your morning routine and promote heart-healthy energy for your day without a caffeine crash. Because Super Beats Heart Chews Unique, clinically researched grape seed extract promotes heart, healthy energy, and normal blood pressure as part of a healthy lifestyle. We can recommend it to you. The grape seed extract used in Superbeats Heart Juice has been clinically shown to be two times as effective at supporting normal blood pressure as a healthy lifestyle alone. So do more for your heart and treat yourself with Superbeats Heart Juice. Join over 1 million customers, get free shipping and returns, and a 90-day money-back guarantee. And right now, you can get a free 30-day supply with your first purchase at superbeats.com slash commentary, S-U-P-E-R-B-E-E-T-S dot com slash commentary. Okay, so let's move on to the um, political buzzsaw that is now facing the Democratic Party. Uh, they have these two things, right? They have a win. They have a win. They have a guaranteed win sitting there, a $1.7 trillion hard infrastructure bill that will likely pass with flying colors through the Senate. I mean, it was it, it was it was voted on whatever the sort of structure was was already voted on. Uh, you know, I think with a filibuster proof majority, right? Wasn't it the first vote was like sixty eight to thirty three or something? Not thirty three. That would be one hundred and one. Whatever. Um, that's done. That's it. That's there. That's it. And now that which they could get and then walk around saying, we've done this fantastic thing on infrastructure, is now being held hostage to the larger Democratic ambition, which is to pass the $3.5 trillion social infrastructure reconciliation package that is not going to pass. 
and we have Chuck. We have a bizarre Kabuki dance. I don't know because Kabuki's not really a dance. I mean, we have a bizarre piece of theater going on where Chuck Schumer says, we're going to get all this done. We're going to get the hard infrastructure done. We're going to get the reconciliation package done. And we're going to get the debt ceiling done. And we're going to do it in two weeks. And Joe Manchin was on the phone with Joe Biden this weekend saying, we're not, I'm not voting for the, I'm not voting for the three and a half trillion dollar bill. And, 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 and Kristen Sinema of Arizona says, give me the first bill or I'm not voting for the second. Like, I'm not going to even consider the second bill unless you separate this process. And moderates in the House are now saying, don't do this to me. Why are you Why are you going to put me in the position of voting against this bill? It can't pass. I don't want to vote for it. It'll be bad for me. You want us to go into 2022 with me in a district that I, that I can lose and the Democrats can lose voting for a the, the, the largest single piece of legislation in American history. And they're still going down this road. Now, we're not, you know, we're not privy to their innermost thoughts and we are not part of their ideological coalition. So we can only speculate as to the thought process that is leading Schumer and Pelosi and Biden and the White House into this pretense that they are going to get what they want. Um, and I, I can tell that because I already see Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine, you know, my my most, my, you know, my favorite sort of uh, factitious um, liberal conventional wisdom guy except on a couple of issues already like setting this up by saying Joe Manchin is the most monstrous person who has ever lived. I mean, this is the, the he is, Joe Manchin is now becoming the liberals John McCain, what what John McCain was to the Trump Trumpkins, Joe Manchin is now becoming to conventional liberal public opinion. Um, Joe Manchin is of course doing this. Uh, he is the, he is the tar baby. He is taking all of the fire so that Maggie Hassan and others might be able to survive in 2022 because if he can get them not to have to vote for this bill, she will not have to vote for it. And then she will have a chance against uh, Christopher Sununu. And if she votes for it, she's toast. So it's progressives who are driving this, right? It's progressives who aren't allowing the moderates to some sort of an off ramp, some sort of a face saving way out of this power struggle for lack of a better word <clears throat> and they're they have some arcane strategy that maybe you can summarize for me because i really do not understand no that's it. my point that was my question i want you to summarize it for me okay please well, summarize it for me christine you have many liberal friends you summarize it for us no no honestly i i don't think i think it's a lot more simple than than uh complex and strategic i think it's we've got to get everything we possibly can and they the assumption here that they're they're i think misguided assumption is that the voters that they definitely need both for the midterms and for biden's re-election uh two years later are these suburban often female voters you know the kind of moderate independents who who didn't like trump so they went for biden but as we said many times during that campaign 
don't really like Biden that much either. It's just like the lesser of two evils. They thought they, they are still treating this as a mandate. And I go back to the fact that Biden removed that portrait of George Washington from the Oval Office and put FDR up there. That just drives me nuts. But I think it is also a signaling that we should pay attention to. But, but the point I was trying to make briefly is that they could get a win here because they would maybe Manchin Cinema and half a dozen other Democrats who are using them as cover wouldn't vote for a $3.5 trillion, you know, metaphysical infrastructure package, but they would vote for a $1.5 trillion one. Right, right. And they could get that win tomorrow. If they, they don't see it as a win, though. They see that that's compromise. And for the progressive wing, compromise is not is loss. And which, of but course, that's, is not, yeah. But that's, I mean, to the extent <clears throat> we're talking about a strategy on the part of the progressives, I don't really think they have one. They have a goal. And they exactly. have no strategy to get there. And that's that's the point is that we're not talking about what's in the bill. We're talking about how much it costs. And we've only ever talked about how much it costs. The spending is the point. It doesn't right. matter what it does. It's just about spending this ton of money. And so spending less money doesn't feel like a win when all you've been talking about is spending money, not what this does. And that's not even that is not enough. I mean, I, I, I read uh, over the weekend that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is sponsoring legislation to further extend the, like, what what is it, the unemployment payments? I mean, they, they just want this permanent emergency to become, you know, universal basic income, to become all the all these projects that they can't actually get past um, in a bipartisan fashion. It's the piggybacking on the on the uh, emergency, which I think Americans are now tired of. Like people really aren't going to buy into that amount of spending. And that concern, just like the concern over the summer about inflation, which the Biden administration try and Democrats tried to ignore as real. It's real. I've been shocked by the lack of um, general appreciation for this child credit money that the people are getting. If you're if you have children, you get a certain amount of money from the government now you know, for X amount of months on a monthly basis. And, you know, the polling around it is kind of tepid. Like the notion that people appreciate it, but do they want this to go on forever? No, no, not according Even to any people who I've benefit. Any, yeah, that's it. That's progressives have, yeah. I'm sorry, just progressives have one big idea. That idea is to give people money. And if it's not being well received, what other idea do they have? This is central central to their whole way in an animating thesis of what the American electorate responds to. But but don't you think, I mean, this I've said similar things before, but in, in knowing your point how it's it's all about the money and it's not even um, necessarily what the money goes to, and it's just it's just this big um, number that is the goal. Don't you think there's actually an element here uh, on the part of the progressives of sort of trolling like they, 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 they like, like i mean they genuinely i think want to they want more than anything else to have people like us saying oh my god can you believe that number yeah well but yeah, they absolutely yeah and they mistake i mean i do think though that noah's right that the, the substance matters less i mean we saw this with the with the uh, with the squad with everything from environmental uh, legislation they've proposed it is really about how it will appear to their followers and fans. And I do think they, but in this case, I think to the child tax uh, payment, they mistake giving money for giving people meaning, right? They think if someone gets a check and they we say it's for their children, they'll think we care about their children. But that's really not the way people uh, see that. They might see, yes, in an emergency, this money is helpful for a few months, but to, but to feel dependent on federal government in that way, for most Americans, is still not what they want. That is that, not that what goes, they want. 
that is a sentiment that has been, uh, you know, active in progressive politics for a century. It was, uh, you know, pretty apparent when uh, Nancy Pelosi described Obamacare as being this liberating thing. You know, now you can right. go out and be a poet because you don't have to worry about health insurance, right? Well, that's not liberating. Liberating right. is right. having the means to provide for yourself and having agency. Uh, that's what's liberating, having a government provide you for, for you know, uh, benefits that you would somehow use towards some end or another. You know, that that's not, that's the opposite of liberating, actually. Look, we saw this earlier this month, right? So the uh, unemployment, the, the um, $300 a week uh, unemployment supplemental insurance uh, came to an end this month. Uh, the eviction moratorium uh, was lifted by the Supreme Court this month. And the general tenor and proposition was the American people are about to be uh, immiserated and uh, impoverished and driven into penury by these changes. And simultaneously, we are told that 9 million jobs in the United States are unfilled. 9 million jobs in the United States are unfilled. They were unfilled because they did not need to be filled because people were being employed in other ways or being supported in other ways. Now, we have the case of parents who didn't know what to do with their kids because everything was shut down because of COVID or schooling or all of that. Um, That all, from what we can tell, that is mostly going okay across the country. I mean, I know we hear these pockets of stories about schools, you know, closing down or kids going into quarantine, but that, that is not a nationwide crisis from what we can tell now that we are in the middle of September. Um, but I bring this up only to say that this idea that we are, we are, that we have suspended the rules of self-government and self-care and self support and all of that in favor of a new concept in which people from the time they're born get health care, from the time they're two get free schooling, from the time they're four they get this and that, and then they go on through life, they have this, and this is pajama boyism. This is Obama's 2012 pajama boy, the history of life, or it wasn't pajama boy, it was that video. What was, what was the name? I can't remember. So-and-so's world. I can't even remember. Uh, it, was, yeah, it, was, it was the female name. Right. Yeah. It's uh, like, here's what you get from us. Cradle to grave support. And this is basically the crux of the divide in the country. And for us, the problem is we say the American people don't believe in this. But a lot of people... The life of Julia. Believe, life of Julia. Thank you. Pajama Boy was the male Julia. Right. So um, (laughs) Pajama Boy was Christmas. Christmas, you can go and annoy your relatives. You can be 25 and mustachioed and, and, you know, have this full pajama with the butt flap that hangs open and sipping hot cocoa and tell them about the wonders of Obamacare. Julia was, you know, she's born into into a protective state and she dies in a protective state. And all the while, the government is helping lift her up and enjoy her life. I think it is important to understand that what liberals want, and this has now become a general liberal desideratum, is to roll the dice on this. Inequality is screwing everything up. Climate change is screwing everything up. We need to roll the dice on another, a new gigantic set of federal uh, supports for everything everywhere and see if that works. 
And the problem is, of course, that we also, uh, I mean, I, I hesitate to say we can't afford it because we obviously can't afford it unless the Fed just keeps printing money forever and pays for it by something that will ultimately inflate our, our currency beyond anything that we can even possibly imagine. But we can't, not only can't we afford it, but but we, again, have this deep philosophical question, which is like, what are we doing to the spirit, you know, what are we doing to the spirit and soul of, uh, of America by, by creating uh, a sense in which uh, you are not expected to, nor should you want to, nor is it moral for you to stand on your own two feet and to, and to take pride in supporting your family or supporting yourself or, or grow, you know, uh, moving uh, through life, uh, doing better and better and, and, uh, looking to improve your station and thereby improving the country as a whole. And that's an impossible challenge that we now face, I think, because so many people have ceased believing uh, in this. And, and there is this n- new intellectual infrastructure that says things like, no, all economic laws have been suspended. Now we have new modern monetary theory. We can spend four trillion dollars and it, it it's not spending we don't even it's not even spent it's it's invested it's 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 free the money all money is free i mean well, and it's the, yeah. the irony of of the claim the sort of progressive left-wing claim that the state should be the one cradle to grave protecting every citizen and that that is the morally responsible and correct thing to do is belied by the fact that when it has many times over attempted to do that, it can't even manage to get the, the money in the hands of the people who need it. We saw this with the uh, with a lot of the unemployment money. We saw this with a lot of the rent moratorium. So states were given all this money by the federal government and they didn't actually get it to the people who most needed it. So there, there, this, this, bureaucratic uh, collapse, which is now become, I guess, for Americans, just an everyday occurrence, whether it's at the local, state or federal level, again, goes back to Noah's point about breeding cynicism about the government. Like you think, well, it doesn't work, but let's just keep throwing money at that problem. It, do- it the, the rhetoric belies the reality for Americans who actually do need access to some sort of uh, federal or state money and can't get it. Um, guys, uh, if you've ever been behind the wheel of a high-performance sports car and you realize how much better a car can be, you never want to settle for a regular car again, and you'll feel the same way about your X-chair from the moment you sit down in it. You'll understand why many consider X-chair to be the finest office chair in the world, the luxury supercar of office chairs. Can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? Your X-chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? Your X-chair can. It's all in the LMAX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for X-Chair. And once you feel the customized support of X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. Take my advice. Try X-Chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. So go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair. C-O-M-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y.com for $100 off your offer, your order. X-Chair is a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. x X-C-H-A-I-R commentary.com. Um, so uh, philosophically, we have a problem with this. Practically speaking, uh, the Democrats are courting a, a level of disaster. I'm not quite clear. I understand how they're going to walk themselves away from. They have a win. They have a bill that they that has bipartisan support that they can pass. And Biden can stand on the lawn and say, 
uh, our bridges, our highways, our sewers, our, I don't know what, you know, our, our, our ventilated schools, we are saved. I have saved you. And, and I showed you we can work together. Democrats and Republicans can work together. Da, 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 da. And they are throwing this in the garbage can. They are throwing this in the garbage can. I, it, is, it is the animating principle of what he ran on. He can res- restore normalcy to Washington, which means achieving bipartisan support for legislation. I don't even like the bill. I don't care. Like, it's got majority support. It's got majority support in the Senate. We have majority support in the House. He also ran on uh, Build Back Better. And you have to be able to build yeah. if, if, if you're going to fulfill that. Yeah. So, um, basically, we have, you know, uh, 40 progressives in the House. Um, if the Biden administration is tanked, it's not going to be because Joe Manchin won't nuke the filibuster, like, you know, won't nuke the filibuster. It's not going to be, they have this bill in hand. They are the ones holding it hostage to the larger bill because they figure probably rightly, if Biden walks around and claims this big victory, then, then any, any uh, form of social pressure to pass the second bill lessens. But this Um, also exposes the, you know, primary lie of Joe Biden's 2020 campaign, which was that, you know, he was not a man of the left, that he was a moderate, that he was, you know, a centrist, that he was going to work, you know, create coalitions and, and get stuff done. But he was always a man of the left. He was always, he was never the moderate that he pretended to be. And he has in his in office deferred to progressives more often than not to the point now that it's threatening his primary uh, legislative uh, objective of his first year in office. And he could stop this tomorrow. Today, he could walk out, pillory his left flank, make um, adversaries of them, uh, and make it plain that they are the obstacles to his legislative agenda. And that threat would dissipate immediately. Immediately. The power of the White House is such that he could isolate these progressives and put them on the defensive and force them to compromise. He could do that if he wanted to. He does not want to. He has the leader of his opposition in the House is a person who went to the Met Gala wearing a dress that said tax the rich in the lettering of Chick-fil-A. He is the president of the United States. He got 81 million votes. She got 15,000 votes in a primary, which won her the election. He is kowtowing to her and the forces that she represents. Now, it's not just to her. So, but I mean, like, let's get a grip here. Okay. The same person with the Chick-fil-A tax the rich dress just in, you know, has announced her intention to introduce a bill into, you know, uh, that um, uh, ends military aid to Israel. Ends military aid to Israel. Like, it's a weird thing. Like, if he doesn't get a hold of some of this, you know, they own him. They have him. They have him. Like, they, they, they have, they have his testicles in a lockbox. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know what to say. Like, that's Noah's point is like totally, you know, really. And, but they don't. 
they're going to lose the house next year. Like they, they're they're going to lose the house, which is which is the animating pressure, right? They're going to lose the house, so they need to get them everything done now. But um, if Biden went to them and said, "Okay, you know what? We're going to do a soft infrastructure bill. We're going to make it a billion and a half. That's all we can get. A trillion and a half. That's all we can get, which would make it the largest bill ever, anyway." So drop dead, all of you. Like I'm giving you this, or you know, go, I, go, go, and go and destroy everything. Really, go ahead. But you know, he's not going to do that. Why is he going to do that? Because he's not good at his job. He's not good at his job. He's he's cowardly in the face of these threats. But I mean, he's but he's also a man of the left. His sentiments are with the progressive left. So he he's not he's not a Joe Manchin Democrat. No, he's not Never a Joe been. Manchin. He's not a Joe Manchin Democrat. But you know, he was also the tough on crime Democrat. He was the crime bill Democrat. He was the drug czar Democrat. He created the drug. That was where, that was the way the wind was blowing, though. That's not where his his sentiments lie. No, no, but he was a he was a he was at that point he was and he disavowed a, the crime bill when he yeah, ran. and then he disavowed the crime bill, which is partial partially where they they ended up owning him. Um, you know, to watch and see what will go on in Washington over the next couple of weeks with all of this. you got to go subscribe to our friend David Bonson's two newsletters, the dctoday.com and uh, dividendcafe.com. Uh, I've told you about them before, dctoday.com. Uh, you get it at about 6 p.m., tells you what's going on in the markets that day and what the policy ins and outs in Washington seem to be doing to affect the larger scale economic picture, particularly with the Fed. And then uh, at the end of the week, you get DividendCafe.com, which gives you a view from 30,000 feet of the uh, larger macroeconomic issues that are besetting the country. Right now, as I speak, um, it appears that uh, we're going to have a very bad day on Wall Street. I'm not, you know, I think the news that we've been talking about, uh, we're, we're taping this before Wall Street opens, the futures are down 600 points or something, which, you know, in a 35,000, uh, you know, Dow at 35,600 points is not the be all and end all of the world, but it's pretty bad. And it is a reflection of real world responses to what we've been talking about all, all this hour. Uh, you will really profit if you uh, go today, go to DividendCafe.com right now and subscribe to David's two newsletters um, from the Bonson Group the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management business. So uh, we have to go again. I'm going to encourage you um, uh, today to go to commentary.org and read our October issue. Brilliant pieces, as I said, by Brett Stevens, by Eli Lake, by Jonathan Shanzer, by our own Christine Rosen, uh, Matt Continetti on Biden, the incompetent, uh, Adam White's a very brilliant piece on the problems with the Texas heartbeat bill and uh, how they are a natural um, manifestation of the horrendous legal world that was created by the Roe v. Wade decision uh, and um, many other uh, wonderful pieces and an amazing piece by Mayor Soli Silovechik on Hannah Senesh, the uh, partisan poet uh, who um, uh, it's one of the most beautiful stories that you'll ever read. Uh, Sully, Mayor Soloveitchik, is the honoree or roastee at our 2021 Commentary Magazine Roast. It's our 11th roast. Uh, we, of course, had to 
cancel our roast last year. Roasties have included over the years Charles Krauthammer, Dick Cheney, Jonah Goldberg, Ben Shapiro, Norman Podhoritz, Midge Dechter, Roger Hertog, Dan Senor, uh, Joe Lieberman, uh, and I'm, I'm missing I'm, I'm missing one or two, and I apologize for that. Um, and uh, uh, Sully is a remarkable person, a remarkable personality, uh, and he will be immense fun to make fun of. And if you uh, email roast at commentary.org, we can give you information on how to buy tickets or how to buy tables. This is our big fundraiser of the year. Um, it is a legendary evening in New York. I think it's fair to say if you know anybody who's ever been to a roast, ask them if it's worth the trip and worth the expense. And I think they'll all tell you that it is. Uh, it is fun. It is frolic. It is high humor. It is uh, a chance to meet and greet and be with uh, fellow commentary fans and readers. And it is the event that helps us keep the bills paid and the lights on and the magazine and the podcast running. So a roast at commentarymagazine.org. Uh, more to come on this. Uh, it's in it's November 22nd, so you've got time to plan. You've got two months to plan your trip, or if you're here, just figure out where you're going to park your car. Uh, we'll let you know where it is. Um, if you take you know serious interest, it's in New York City. Uh, and we will, yes, all be together in Baldwin having fun. So uh, back to you tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.